Hello, I'm Tony Payne, and welcome to another edition of The Paintful Truth. And in today's episode, we're going to think about why we use such annoying tactics to avoid changing our minds. When someone challenges me to change the way I think or act, they can usually expect to meet a well-organised resistance. There's a layer of conceit that they'll have to punch through if they're going to get me to change my mind. Uh, because I don't really want to admit that I may possibly just slightly, very understandably perhaps, have been mistaken in this one instance. And they'll have to overcome a blob of inertia that is designed to keep things just as they are, because I like it that way, if they want me to change my mind. And after that, they'll also have to deal with the fire of social fear that always springs to life when, whenever I'm faced with making a change that my friends might think weird or, or mistaken. So good luck with, with all of that. But somewhere among all those defences to changing my mind about anything, there is a layer of resistance that I've come to call the yeah but defence. Now, I've seen this, if I'm honest, occasionally in myself in rare moments of self-awareness. But of course, I notice it in other people all the time because other people are mostly wrong. And for some reason use these kinds of dodges and strategies to avoid coming around to my way of thinking. The secret of the yeah but defence is to start off by acknowledging with a weary nod of the head the very strong, even overwhelming nature of of the argument someone is presenting to you. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I'm aware of that. Yeah, I've read those verses. Yeah, yeah, we all know that. And then to introduce the but. But it's not quite that simple, is it? But there is an interesting verse that might be an exception to what you're arguing. But surely the evidence you're presenting isn't the only thing to say about this subject. But I've heard that some scholars take quite a different view of the matter. But I saw this documentary on Netflix. But I'm not sure that the consequences of your argument would be easy to put into practice. But if we accept your argument, won't that lead to, and you could insert alarming consequence here, down the track? But I feel that what you're saying owes much too much to, and then you insert modernism or postmodernism or individualism or Western guilt culture or some other complex cultural movement that probably neither of you understand. But what are the motives of the people who are producing the evidence that you're quoting? But isn't this the kind of argument that, and you can insert your favourite bogeyman here, would make? But surely there are more important things for us to be addressing right now. All these buts. And the genius of the yeah but defence is that most of these buts are in themselves perfectly reasonable things to say. Nothing is ever that simple. There are always exceptions. Every view is always challenged by some scholar, somewhere or other. We all have mixed motives. We are all influenced by cultural trends, and there are always other important things to be talked about. All these buts make sense in themselves. It's just that none of them actually respond to the evidence or argument that's been presented, nor give due weight to its volume or strength. In fact, the purpose of the various yeah-but defences is to deflect the force of strong arguments or powerful evidence, and if possible, to avoid actually having to interact with them. Now, a well-executed yeah-but 
and especially the very powerful combination yeah but can neatly sidestep even the strongest challenge to our thinking or behavior and let me just give you one example that perhaps can illustrate this when theologians aren't comfortable with putting the substitutionary atonement of Christ right at the essential center of their thinking and gospel and sad to say there are many theologians who aren't they're faced with the awkward fact that the New Testament does precisely that at point after point the evidence is strong and weighty and numerous so how do these theologians respond to a presentation of the traditional classical orthodox view of the cross and its place in New Testament Christianity well yeah but surely the salvation of individual sinners through the atonement of Jesus is not the only thing that the Bible says about the cross yeah but that's surely a naive approach to evangelism these days. I mean, we need categories and ideas that resonate with the cultural narratives of modern people. Yeah, but isn't this obsession with sin and atonement really just an expression of individualistic, guilt-centric Western thinking? Yeah, but we don't want to end up in some kind of life-denying fundamentalist sect that has nothing to say to the modern world. Yeah, but there are many reputable New Testament scholars who think that the traditional understanding of the cross is simplistic and outdated. And so on and so forth. Let's divert attention from the elephantine quantity of evidence in the room by pointing to some interesting features of the wallpaper. So how can we respond to the year but? Well, at one level, we could always counter with a year but of our own, I suppose. Yeah, those caveats you're raising are worth addressing and we should look at them but let's start by looking at the large amount of strong evidence that's right here in front of us and assessing its validity and let's commit together to obedience or even repentance in light of the weight of the evidence as we find it we could try that approach and might that work well perhaps but only if a spirit of humility and repentance is wafting through the conversation. And that leads to the second and more significant response, I suppose, and that is to pray for our conversation partners and for ourselves that God would grant us both repentance in light of a clear understanding of the truth. Because the year but is not simply an annoying rhetorical strategy that frustrates us when we're trying to persuade someone of something, although it is. It's a symptom of something deeper. It's a symptom of the profound spiritual pride that afflicts us all. Pride is very close to the heart of sin, as Augustine and many others have observed. Pride is perhaps the primal sin, the unwillingness to give God his rightful place as the highest good and supreme ruler, and to put ourselves in that place instead. Pride is the insistence that I am at the centre of the universe, that I need to be acknowledged and deferred to, and that the rest of reality needs to organise itself into a nice orderly orbit around my interests. Pride is deeply resistant to any form of challenge or change, but particularly to that challenge that tells me the truth about myself and that thus dethrones me from the false place I've given to myself as the centre of my world. And the yeah but defence is just one of the weapons that our pride deploys to protect us from the truth. 
It doesn't matter, for example, that creation is pouring forth speech and that the truth about God and the world and ourselves is plainly displayed there. We will avert our eyes and suppress the truth and find any rhetorical fig leaf, like the air butt, to cover our nakedness. It doesn't matter that the light of the world has come and is shining brilliantly before our eyes. We will hide in the darkness, as John's Gospel says, because our deeds are evil. The year but defence is not just a rhetorical strategy that we use to avoid inconveniently weighty evidence. It turns out to be a pretty good description of the state of my own heart and all our hearts when we're confronted by God's truth. Yeah, I know that you are the loving, ruling, providing God and that I am your beloved creature and child. But did you really say I shouldn't eat from the tree? Well, while I was writing that little meditation on the year but defence, I did see one of my hobby horses trotting by and I was deeply tempted to jump on its back for a ride. I'm talking about the New Testament's overwhelming usage of the word church to refer to a gathered local assembly and the correspondingly deafening absence of the language or categories of worship to describe what happens in that assembly. I've been in so many year but conversations about that question over the years and about the inconvenient but weighty evidence that is involved. But in the interests of not boring anyone with yet another go around on this topic, I managed to relegate it to this little PS. And another little PS is to thank you all for your engagement and response to The Painful Truth. I've really enjoyed hearing from different ones of you in different ways. Please keep emailing me. I respond to all the emails I get from you. Don't be uh, slow in responding and in asking any questions, not only about what I've been talking about or writing about, but just topics that you'd like me to have a go at. And uh, I appreciate the ones that people have already sent in, but please keep sending them in. That's all for The Painful Truth this week. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.